Christians Caving to Transcultists' Language Rules. While theologians Dr. Denny Burke, Dr. Robert A.J. Gagnon, Dr. John Piper, and Pastor Douglas Wilson say Christians should not use incorrect pronouns when referring to people who pretend to be the sex they aren't, increasing numbers of purportedly theologically orthodox Christians believe Christians should use them. They believe that refusing to use preferred pronouns will result in trans-identifying persons severing relationships, and to woke theologians and pastors, maintaining relationships supersedes truth. Christian capitulation to sin will always be accompanied by theological rationalizations that will sound superficially reasonable. In a recent episode of his Ask Me Anything podcast, J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, proffered such rationalizations as he revealed that he uses incorrect pronouns when referring to trans-identifying persons. He argued that his complicity with the false and destructive trans ideology constitutes, quote, generosity of spirit, end quote, which he contrasts with truth-telling. Greer also claimed that Preston Sprinkle, president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, does likewise. Before going further, I want to note that several of the quotes cited by Greer and to which I will be responding appear to be wrongly attributed by Greer to Sprinkle. These incorrectly attributed quotes come instead from a paper by Gregory Coles, who identifies as a celibate gay Christian and is part of the celibate gay Christian movement criticized by many, including Denny Burke, who wrote this about Coles' memoir, quote, Coles seems to equate differences about homosexual immorality with differences that Christians have about second-order doctrines. But how can homosexual immorality be treated in this way when the Bible says that those who commit such deeds do not inherit the kingdom of God, end quote? Coles doesn't merely say Christians may use incorrect pronouns. In his paper titled, What Pronouns Should Christians Use for Transgender People?, which is littered with PC language created by the LGBT community to advance its ideology, Coles argues Christians should use incorrect pronouns. And I quote him, The most biblical response to transgender people's pronouns is a posture of unequivocal pronoun hospitality. That is, I believe, that all Christians can and should use pronouns that reflect the expressed gender identities of transgender people, regardless of our views about gender identity ethics. If a person identifies herself to you as she, I hope you will consider it an act of Christ-like love to call her she out of respect, whether or not you believe that the way she expresses her gender identity is honoring to God, end quote. Astonishingly, Coles grounds his defense of appeasement, I mean, of Christ-like pronoun hospitality in this passage, from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and I quote, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. End quote. Coles applies this passage to the current pronoun mandates, appealing also to respect to justify appeasement. And I quote Coles. When we apply Paul's linguistic approach to the pronouns we use about transgender people, I believe we arrive at a posture of pronoun hospitality, a willingness to accommodate the pronouns of our transgender neighbors, regardless of our own views about the Christian ethics of gender identity. That is, when we order our language toward making sure that the truth of the gospel can be heard in an understandable way by those around us, we are compelled to use pronouns in a way that effectively communicates our respect for transgender people, even if we still believe that followers of Jesus are called to express their gender identity in accordance with their appointed sex, end quote. If instead of referring to our own views about the Christian ethics of gender identity, Coles had referred to the truth of Christian ethics regarding gender identity, the problem with his worldview would become clearer. Imagine a Christian saying, we should be willing to use the pronouns of our transgender neighbors regardless of the truth of Christian ethics regarding gender identity. Does the anger of trans cultists toward Christians who refuse to missex people signify lack of understanding, or does it signal rebellion? Is it an act of respect to concede to demands to call someone something that is an integral part of an ideology that denies reality, affirms sin as good, and grievously harms both individuals and society? Can true respect, like true biblical love, ever entail denial or even the appearance of denial of another person's embodiment as male or female? Cole's interpretation of the passage in Corinthians is at odds with that of theologian Thomas Schreiner, and I quote Schreiner, Cultural flexibility, however, is not infinitely elastic. For instance, Paul does not compromise on moral norms or on fundamental truths of the gospel, end quote. Theologian Paul E. Garland shares a similar understanding, and I quote, Paul does not think that fundamental and distinctive Christian demands are negotiable, depending on the circumstances. He did not eat idle food in order to become as one without the law to those without the law. He did not tone down his assault on idolatry to avoid offending idolaters or curry favor with them. His accommodation has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message or soft-peddling its ethical demands, end quote. Evidently, Coles doesn't view Genesis 127, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Or Deuteronomy 22.5 that says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God, as fundamental, distinctive, and non-negotiable. It should trouble Coles, Greer, and Sprinkle that they are participants in what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes as a new and damaging incarnation of the heresy of Gnosticism. And I quote Wright, The confusion about gender identity is a modern and now internet-fueled form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. The Gnostic, one who knows, has discovered the secret of who I really am, 
behind the deceptive outward appearance. This involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world. Nature, however, tends to strike back, with the likely victims in this case being vulnerable and impressionable youngsters who, as confused adults, will pay the price for their elders' fashionable fantasies, end quote. To bolster his position, Coles points to Christianity Today, which has now regrettably adopted secular journalistic practices using incorrect pronouns for cross-sex passers. A 2015 article by Dr. Mark Yarhouse in Christianity Today provides evidence that both Christianity Today and Yarhouse have capitulated to the wicked and deceitful trans ideology. Yarhouse writes, and I quote, I still recall one of my first meetings with Sarah. Sarah is a Christian who was born male and named Sawyer by her parents. As an adult, Sawyer transitioned to female. Sarah would say transitioning, adopting a cross-gender identity, took 25 years. It began with facing the conflict she experienced between her biology and anatomy as male and her inward experience as female, end quote. With absolute certainty, Sprinkle offers this dire warning about refusal to participate in the trans lie, and I quote, If you want to immediately cut off a relationship with someone which is ending all opportunity to embody and share Jesus with this person, then don't use the pronouns they want you to use. It is an immediate relational killer, end quote. He is saying that if unbelievers lost in spiritual darkness will become so angry at the refusal of Christians to participate in their reality-denying, body-and-soul-destroying fiction— that they sever relationships, Christians should capitulate. This position will result in an enfeebled relinquishment of culture-making to sinners lost in darkness. The homosexual and trans communities use language as a tool to transform culture. They redefine words, emptying them of their former meanings, and invent new words that embody subversive and false assumptions— They become enraged at anyone who refuses to yield to their language diktats. And then some faith leaders say, if we refuse to use their language, we kill relationships, thereby killing our ability to witness. What a diminished view of God's sovereignty such a position reveals. Moreover, enraged responses to encounters with truth sometimes signify the pricking of a conscience. Sometimes a respectful demurral from participating in sin is a seed planted. The ethics of speech are not determined by the subjective response of hearers of that speech. The ethics are determined by the content, that is, is it true? And the delivery, that is, is it civil? Coles repeatedly appeals to the feelings of trans-identifying persons as determinative of the terms Christians should use. If... Coles argues, trans-identifying persons feel, or claim to feel, shamed, invisible, sidelined, defiled, invalidated, microaggressed, disappeared, or leprous, Christians should use whatever pronouns these people prefer, or we destroy our witness. Is there any biblical evidence that Jesus engaged in such relational, missional evangelism or fretted about how sinners would feel if he refused to affirm the sin they engaged in or placed at the center of their identities? When he encountered the rich young ruler, 
the woman caught in adultery, or Zacchaeus, the tax collector? How long did Jesus dally in relationships before he told them to repent of their sins? If refusing to concede through our language that a biological man is a woman makes such a man feel defiled or microaggressed, imagine if he had been part of the multitude that John the Baptist called a brood of vipers. Dr. Gagnon, author of The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Text and Hermeneutics, makes clear what Greer's, Coles, and Sprinkles purported hospitality and respect signify, and I quote, It is not an act of hospitality or respect to the offender to use fake pronouns and proper names, but rather, one, a scandal to the weak and young in the church and a rightful violation of conscience for many that will lead many to stumble to their ruin. Two, an accommodation to sin that God finds utterly abhorrent to say nothing of the fact that it is an egregious lie. And three, a complicity in the offender's self-dishonoring, self-degrading, and self-demeaning behavior that does him or her and the grieving ex-spouse and children, if there are any, no favor because it can get the person in question excluded from the kingdom of God. What's next? Treating as a married couple an incestuous union involving a man and his mother allegedly as a show of hospitality and respect? Is that what Paul would have done at Corinth? Addressing the man and his stepmother as husband and wife so as to extend hospitality and respect? What kind of revisionist lunacy is this? Paul would not have taken this approach even for those who don't profess to be believers. Attorney, journalist, senior editor at the recently launched political website The Dispatch, and Christian, David French, exposes the error in manipulative tactics used to shame Christians into rhetorical concessions to the destructive trans ideology, and I quote him, When I use a male pronoun to describe Chelsea Manning, I'm not trolling, I'm not being a jerk, I'm not trying to make anyone angry, I'm simply telling the truth. I'm reflecting biological reality, and I'm referring to the created order as outlined in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Nor is this a matter of manners. I've encountered many well-meaning people who've told me that I should acquiesce to the new pronouns because it's the polite thing to do. I want to avoid hurting feelings, don't I? I want to treat someone the way I'd like to be treated, right? What's the harm in a little white lie? But when your definition of manners requires that I verbally consent to a fundamentally false and important premise, then I dissent. You cannot use my manners to win your culture war. I will speak respectfully. I will never use a pronoun with the intent of causing harm. And if I encounter a person in obvious emotional distress, I will choose my words very carefully. But I will not say what I do not believe. End quote. Coles asserts there are two assumptions about the nature of language on which Christians who reject trans language diktats rely. Assumption number one, pronoun gender always and only refers to an individual's appointed sex. And assumption two, when our definitions of words differ from other people's definitions, telling the truth means using our own definitions. Assumption number two implicitly rejects the Christian view that objective truth exists. Christians have no obligation to treat assumption number two as if it's true. 
It's odd that a Christian would treat his own definitions of words like he, she, and they as just other assumptions. Cole seems to hold the view that Peter Kreeft disdains when he says the phrase your truth is both oxymoronic and moronic. Dr. Burke reveals the sullied underbelly of Cole's expectation that Christians treat their biblically informed definitions not as true, but as merely one set of assumptions in the diverse universe of competing assumptions. Dr. Burke says, and I quote, So much of the evangelical conversation on these issues has been colonized by secular identity theories. Those theories are premised on an unbiblical anthropology, which defines human identity as what I feel myself to be rather than what God designed me to be. If there is to be recovery and renewal of Christian conscience on sexuality issues, secular identity theories must give way to God's design as revealed in nature and scripture, end quote. Coles justifies the redefinition of pronouns by the trans cult by arguing accurately that language changes. But the reality of linguistic shifts doesn't mean that Christians should acquiesce to politically driven changes that embody lies and which are increasingly imposed by force. Greer also quoted conservative theologian Andrew T. Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate, in which Walker says, quote, My own position is that if a transgender person comes to your church, it is fine to refer to them by their preferred pronoun, end quote. Greer failed to include what Walker said in an article published four months after publication of his book. I quote, Though it is politically incorrect to do so, I will not refer to someone with their desired pronoun in a public venue such as a talk. Those with writing or speaking platforms have an obligation to speak and write truthfully and not kowtow to political correctness or excuse falsehood. End quote. The abandonment of theological orthodoxy always happens incrementally, as it's happening today. C.S. Lewis warned of this in the Screwtape Letters, in which the senior demon Screwtape writes this to his nephew Wormwood, a junior tempter. And I quote, My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is lest, in attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy, that is God. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space.